time for everything and a season for each activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. He has made everything in its time. With these verses in mind, please join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning with thankful hearts that even though we are not meeting together, we can still join in praise and worship you, our God and our Saviour. We bring to you the situation in Ukraine. Lord, we ask that you would soften Putin's heart, that you would give him eyes to see what he is doing and change his heart, Lord. We pray for those around the world who mourn. Give them peace, Lord. There have been so many um, lost through war and COVID, and we struggle to understand. Help us to support those who mourn. We thank you for Rod and Emma and the work they do to keep our church functioning well. Please bless and encourage them in their work. We pray for the sick, Lord, especially for Roy with his foot and Gay as she recovers from her surgery. Ease their pain and bring them comfort as they wait for your healing. We pray for those who are worried or anxious at this time as they see COVID taking over here in New Zealand and around the world. Grant them the peace that can only come from you. God, would you be with our youth leaders as they serve you among our young people? Give them a thirst to know you at a deeper level. Be with those who work with the children at Waltham School. May they know your presence with them as they work with vulnerable children. Lord, we pray for families in a fellowship. We pray that you will be close and give wisdom to parents as they guide their young ones through this difficult time. Lord, be with those who are married. Help them to look to you to strengthen their marriages and their relationships with one another. Be with those who are single and encourage them too, Lord. Lord, we give thanks for the offerings given throughout the week. Help us to use it wisely. These things we pray in and through the name of the mighty Jesus. Amen.
Morena, good morning. Philip has just suggested that the children might like to go out at this point. <laughs> now, in a moment, I want you to pause me. Get, this won't happen forever that you can do this, so enjoy the moment. Pause me and open your Bibles to Luke 14 and read the first 24 verses before you unpause me. You have all the time that you need to do this. So feel free to use it. I'll see you in a bit. I'm going to try to tell this story from Jesus' perspective and to tease out what the um, relevance might be for us. Uh, and Alan, you feel free to have a nap right now. Okay, I'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. It had been a busy week, and now it was the Sabbath. We were encamped just outside town, and we'd had an okay time there. However, beneath it all, I was soul-weary, as it was rapidly becoming apparent that the powers that be, the guardians of my father's temple, had a target on my back. It was uncomfortable. It itched all the time. Bothered me. It was not a new thing for me, but I knew it would not end well, and I had always known that was true. Still, I was feeling the hurt of the rejection by my own people. I was a bit on edge. Reuben, this big-name Pharisee in the district, had invited me for dinner. He'd sent his man around. I wasn't certain what his agenda was, perhaps curiosity, or, or maybe something more sinister. The fact that it was a Sabbath meal made me edgy. It frustrated me that this, the Sabbath, this thing that was for worship and rest and fun that had been ordained by God had become this maze of rules, seemingly designed to trip everybody up, except those in the know. They had created a maze wrapped in a forest surrounded by a labyrinth. I hate legalism with its false righteousness, its self-righteousness, well, the Pharisees, well, they just seem to love its details and all its intricacies. When I got to Reuben's place, there was already a good number of guests there, and as I crossed the threshold, everyone who had been talking fell silent and just stared at me. I felt like I was under a microscope. Not pleasant. However, there was one man there who looked out of more, even more out of place than I did. He was an older man, dressed like a peasant, as I was, but his lower legs were quite swollen. He was standing awkwardly by himself. I could see that he had dropsy. It's a horrible thing. He looked scared when he looked around at all the Pharisees in their fine robes, but when he glanced at me, I sensed hope in his eyes. The penny dropped. They had set up a gotcha moment. You see, one of their weird little rules was that you could not heal on the Sabbath 
as that was work. Now, I wasn't a physician or a doctor that had hung out his shingle and was trying to build a medical practice and charge for my services. And in, in my time, peasants couldn't have afforded a physician. It would have cost three months' salary to go see someone like that. Rather, what I was doing was sharing the free love and grace of God when I encountered sick people. But to them, I was working. Well, the Spirit healed him through me, and he looked like this weight had come off him. He was just so delighted. I couldn't help but smile and have a chat with him, um, even though there was a surrounding sense of tension. He was relieved because all of his village friends thought that because he had dropsy, he had done something really, really bad. And for the life of him, he could not work out what that could be. And even though he couldn't work that out, he still felt great shame. But shame is not a rational thing. He'd been ill a long time, and now he was looking forward to being fit and vigorous and living with his head up rather than hiding in the corners. He took off quickly, and I re-engaged with this silent parliament of Pharisees, still staring at me. Now, often when I'm out in the um, villages uh, healing, there'll be oohs and ahs and cheers, but not this time, not tonight. They had nothing to say, but I could hear the unsaid tut-tuts. He's breaking the Sabbath. So I asked them, if you had a son who fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you not immediately pull him out? You see, they had this rule that you weren't allowed to draw water on the Sabbath because that was work, but if your son or your ox fell down a well, well, that was rescue and you weren't a rescuer, so you could do that. But at the same time, you were not allowed to pray for someone to be healed, but you could rescue a boy trapped in a well. They just continued to stare back at me silently. Even with all their learning and outnumbering me 25 to 1, none of them had anything to say. I began to feel more like the floor show for the evening than a guest, which I think was what I was. Still they stayed silent. Now the table was this sort of giant U-shape and Reuben was sitting at the the bottom of the U. And I noticed that every, not everyone had arrived, but already the places of honour next to him had been taken. You weren't going to get a good seat if you were late. So I thought, well, I'll break this parable by telling them, uh, break the silence, sorry, by telling them the parable that I had been working on. And it went like this. When you were invited to a wedding banquet... Do not sit down at the place of honour in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, those in the places of honour sitting next to Reuben twitched uncomfortably. Reuben was suppressing a giggle at the expense of his friends. I sat down at one of the cheap seats, 
But Reuben did not come and invite me to one of the places of honour. They, they saw me as a peasant rabble rouser, not much more. That much was clear. Well, the conversation tentatively got going eventually. There was some interest in my final comment that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and the humble exalted. They realised that in my little parable the host was the God of Israel, but they couldn't get their head around the upside-down nature of the kingdom that I was suggesting. For them, you worked hard, you studied, you taught, you contributed at the synagogue, you were a good citizen. Those works were the basis that they stood on. And by golly, they were not impressed with some peasant being given a better seat than them. The guy with dropsy, who was to them clearly a severe sinner and scandalously healed, there's no way he was going to get a better seat than any of them. A while later, when normal conviviality returned, Reuben gave me the floor, no doubt wanting me to perform some more for his guests. Interestingly, neither he nor his guests said anything to say to me about healing the man of dropsy. They were all mouth and no trousers. So I said to him, well, Reuben, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours in case they may invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, needless to say, Reuben did not look overly impressed with this. Except for me, everyone at the table was a person of means who would return his invitation at some stage. He was generous to people who would be generous back to him. And he didn't like having the implicit transaction being revealed and talked about. And well, the thought of having the rabble from the street to dinner was so ridiculous it was funny. The poor and the blind being waited on by his servants? What on earth would they all talk about? What a mess they would make. His friends would assume they'd gone mad if he did such a thing. The awkward silence from earlier in the evening returned. And a guest wanting to break the ice said, Oh well, you know, um, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And there was a general affirmation of this comment that went around the table. And what he was saying was, well, we can disagree on ethics and exactly how the kingdom will work, but we're all okay as God's chosen. The tension eased as everyone smugly leaned into their status as one of God's special people. So I told them another parable. Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for his dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, Oh, I've brought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please, please accept my apologies. Another said, I've 
bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please accept my apologies. And another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said to him later, sir, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. By now, Reuben thoroughly regretted invited me, as his friends made their excuses to leave early, much like the invitees in my story. It was one thing for them to suggest that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and that generosity to wealthy friends is not especially laudable. But I was suggesting that Israel, the chosen people of God, might not all make it to God's great kingdom feast. That was a definite deal-breaker for these religious luminaries. They had heard enough. Let me explain. In my day, if you were going to have a feast, you would invite people ahead of time, much like you do, might do with a wedding reception today. The three men mentioned had said yes, they would come, but on the day, it was our custom to send out a reminder to the guests with details of the time and the place. Now, at this point on the day of the feast, the man who had bought a field, the other man who had bought oxen, and the third who had just got married, cried off coming. This was a height of rudeness. I was saying to the Pharisees around the table that you guys care more about your own lives than you do about God's kingdom, and when push comes to shove, you won't be there at the feast. You won't be there because you'll have better things to do. And to make things worse, God fills their places with the great unwashed, like the peasant man with dropsy. The last are now coming first and it gets worse. The servant is told to compel people to come. If you needed to compel people to come, then clearly they did not know the master. So here we're talking about Samaritans and, ooh, hold my nose, Gentiles. These guys who weren't part of God's people, the scum of the earth, was going to have a seat at God's banquet table. Gross. They would not dream of having a meal with an unclean, immoral Gentile like you or like me. Thus ended the evening. What can I say? Social disruption. It's one of my gifts. Well, when we read the um, Gospels, I think it's really easy for us today to demonise the Pharisees. But we can be like them. If you've been around God's people for a while, you would have seen people prioritise getting ahead in life or enjoying a relationship above following the call of Jesus. We can end up subtly believing that we are a bit special because we've served God a lot or believe the right things or have a strong devotional life, whatever. We can be subtly more worried about our own salvation 
than anybody else's. For those of you around in January, did you notice in Doug and Ra's stories that both talked about dealing with the church rules that they were confronted with as new believers? Pharisees like rules. We, I, can be a right Pharisee. Tom Wright said this, If I reckon that I deserve God's favour, I say that I do not need his grace and mercy and that those who do not deserve it should not have it. I'll repeat this. I think it's profound. If I reckon that I deserve God's favour, I'm sort of implicitly saying that I don't need his grace and mercy because I've sorted it out for myself and that those who don't deserve it, well, they shouldn't have it. That is the heart of a Pharisee. What need for honour, recognition or praise do I have? It's an uncomfortable question to sit with especially if you're in some sort of leadership or upfront role. But it's a necessary question. If you need the good opinion of others, what about the invisible, unheard applause of heaven? Might that get drowned out by your need to be popular? What needs are in play for you? What needs are in play for me? I've found that for me the healthy place is to have a very high view of my own basic sinfulness matched with a high view of God's grace and mercy for me. If I start to think that I've got it all sorted out, that is when I become dangerous to myself and being a pastor, dangerous to everybody else. And another question, what in my life competes with my love for God? My job, my kids, my partner, my reputation, my wealth. It's close to the bone too. It will be different for all of us, but it's good to have an insight into what our particular frailties are. Take the time to think about it and ask people that know you well, what do you see as my weak points? What are my vulnerabilities? I talked in a sermon a while back about a young woman who took a job and lived a life that pleased her stepfather, who was everything to her. I had another friend who married because she was afraid of being alone and desperately wanted to be a mum. Another mate met a girl and he could not bear to be without her. All of these three had accepted their invitation to God's kingdom feast, but probably won't show up on the day. I loved all three of them. I still do. They were great people. I was a young adult leader, a youth leader, and an evangelist. Gifted, beloved of God and of me. A good mate of mine is a pastor, and we've talked about this stuff. And he knows my Achilles heels. That's plural, heels. And so he can ask good questions when we chat. Likewise, I know his stuff. I know the sort of woman that will turn his head that might get him into trouble. We need each other's support because we are frail and sinful people. How about you? Can I invite you now to sit with these questions and chew on them with those that you are close to? Thank you for your kind attention.
Oops, sorry, I'll just finish the chocolate, I'll put it away. Um, <clears throat> I'd like you to, uh, again, pause, and pause me, and click on the song, The Blessing. Don't forget to unpause me again. So we're now going to do the benediction, which is very relevant in today's virtual world. Sing like no one's listening. Pray like someone is listening. Love like you have never been hurt. Dance like nobody's watching. Live its, he live its heaven on earth. Christ has no body but ours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Amen.